<laughs> off to a great start. We're off wait, to a great start. Wait, wait a minute. We're a new how show. Does, how, how does it? How does it go? How does? How does it work? We've never done this before, so these hiccups are expected. <laughs> well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock, a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of cult and genre movies. I am one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I'm co-host Justin Bishop. We are joined this week by our good friend, Mr. Todd A. Davis, writer, comedian, and zombie expert, I'm assuming, which is why he's here. Yeah, I love it. I'm all, I'm all about it. Thanks for having me back. Well, thank you for coming back. This is the first episode. What are you oh, talking that's about? Right. Yeah, this is episode uh, number one. Episode that's one. That's right. Thanks for having me. I'll put my hand. Okay, edit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the first edit. Yay. You're, you're, no, Gary, Gary already screwed up before he even did his intro. So I'm know. leaving it all in. So <laughs> <Okay>. Whatever. <laughs> well, welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of Cinema Shock. Uh, so just to give you a quick introduction for what we're going to do on this show, uh, basically each and every week, we're going to take a deep dive into the creation of some of our favorite cult movies. And then we're going to offer our thoughts on the film. Pretty simple. We're not breaking any new ground here, but we do hope that we do it in a way that is uh, maybe more entertaining than you've heard before. I don't know. Maybe it's not. Uh, who does? <laughs> but uh, we'll do our best. Uh, but as a result, we are going to get into some pretty heavy spoilers on all the movies. So the idea really is that you watch the movies along with us. So we, we really hope that that'll happen. We will announce every week what movie we're going to talk about the following week. And, uh, you know, so that'll give you a chance to watch it along. I'm sure that you've seen this week's episode because, I mean, or this week's film because it is uh, incredibly well known. But that may not be the case in the coming weeks. So uh, if you have not seen this week's movie for some reason, you know, I guess hit pause, go watch it because otherwise we're going to spoil the shit out of it. So this is your spoiler warning. And what we decided to do, so we're trying to figure out, you know, how do you kick off a brand new movie podcast? What movie do you talk about? And we couldn't think of anything more fitting than to cover a film that literally kickstarted an entire genre, or at least an entire subgenre of film. So that we're going to spend the next few weeks celebrating the work of the late, great King of the Zombies, Mr. George A. Romero. And we're beginning with the film that started it all, Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. Night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the living dead. Bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. 
A night of total terror. Night. Of the Living Dead. If you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead, I don't... Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I was I was wondering what percentage of the of the audience that would listen to this show has not seen Night of the Living Dead. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty iconic, but hey, yeah. you never know what what blind. That's spot. true. That's uh, true. You know what we could do? We could. I was thinking about this earlier, and uh, and maybe by the time you're hearing this, you'll have seen it happen. But uh, we could literally like just upload the movie to our legally. YouTube we are we are. This is the <laughs> one movie we're going to do on this podcast that we are legally allowed to to upload onto our YouTube channel if we want to. So uh, yeah, right. who knows? What the hell? Maybe we'll just. Put it up there. Put our logo in the corner. You know, right there. You go. <laughs> yeah, that's that's marketing, baby. That's right. There you go, Gary, <laughs> our marketing genius over here. Uh, so, <laughs> before we continue, I do want to acknowledge what my main source of information for this book was, because this was a wealth of knowledge. Uh, the, there are no shortage of uh, sources for information on behind the scenes stories about night of the living dead uh, you can go on amazon prime right now and watch a movie called um, birth of the living dead i believe is what it's called it's a whole documentary about it uh, and so a lot of this is not necessarily new information that you're going to find but this book that i read does have actually had a lot of stuff that i had never heard before about the night of the living dead about the making of the night of the living dead and it is called appropriately Night of the Living Dead, behind the scenes of the most terrifying zombie movie ever made. It's written by Joe Kane. Very easy to find. Uh, I grabbed a copy on Kindle for 10 bucks. So if you're interested in George Romero and, and his zombie movies, especially this particular one, I highly recommend it. Weird. I thought we would be like the first people to discuss this film. And yeah, you so, think so? Yeah. 52 years later, nobody's ever <laughs> talked about it. Oh, that is disappointing <laughs> to find out someone else has discussed it at some point. So when, of course, when you think about George Romero, what's the first thing you think of? You think of zombies or those cool glasses of his. Yeah. Or his beard. <laughs> I often think about George Romero. So <laughs> there's many things. Over time, you evolve in, in features that you, and I don't, mean, I don't mean cinematic. I mean his bodily features. What, what, what are the, what, focus in on. What are, the tr what are the triggers that get you thinking about George Romero? Gary, what is uh, it? Yeah, usually um, my wife when she first wakes up in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, okay, all right. I, we've already, I've already kicked out of the show for that. <laughs> she just canceled it, so <laughs> she's done. We just lost a listener. <laughs> well, uh, George Romero, you know, he crafted a lot of other classic horror movies, and over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to be, be discussing quite a few of those. But it's his relationship with the zombie subgenre that truly cemented his legacy. But the concept of the living dead didn't just spring from Romero's imagination in 1960s Pittsburgh. Like the living dead, the concept of the living dead has been with us for nearly as long as recorded history. And if you're talking about pop culture specifically, You've got vampires, you've got Frankenstein's monster, you've got mummies. Like, these are all technically part of the living dead category. Lazarus and Keith Richards also. 
Lazarus. That's a, yeah, Keith Richards is still, he's still shambling around. <laughs> Lazarus is true. Is that the first recorded zombie story? I mean, actually, it, just, it feels like it. I was like just it. thinking about that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, many of these monsters have been around for centuries. Uh, I mean, vampires or the variations of vampires have been around for, for since well before Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. And mm-hmm. even, you know, Frankenstein's Monster, that's a more recent one, but even that was written in 1818. And it would be another over a century before there were any mentions of zombies in literature. The earliest mentions of the zombie came uh, in a book by a sensationalist travel writer by the name of William Seabrook, a book called The Magic Island. Published in 1929, The Magic Island, it told the stories of deceased Haitians who were often the victims of voodoo vengeance. Taken, they were taken from their graves and then forced to act as slaves for those who had reanimated them. Uh, and, and now this story of the Haitians ha- of the Haitian zombies has a lot of historic uh, there, there's a lot of historical stuff that kind of feeds into that based on the French's you know takeover of Haiti and things like that there's a lot of background from where that kind of sprang from uh, but this book the Magic Island was the first one to really bring it to a lot of Western audiences here's a little uh, quote from that book, if you will, Gary. The zombie, they say, is a soulless human corpse, still dead, but taken from the grave and endowed by sorcery with a mechanical semblance of life. I'm absolutely transported. Wow, I'm hard. <laughs> that's it, that's it. That's, you know, I, I used to tap William Seabrook's uh, phone calls and so that's what he sounded like that's exactly (laughs) historically accurate right but but this book by william seabrook was wildly influential and very very popular uh and naturally of course that means it caught the attention of hollywood who at the time in hollywood universal was the reigning king of horror movies Uh, they had released several popular silent films starring lon chaney in the 1920s before bringing bram stoker's dracula and mary shelley's frankenstein to the screen in 1931 of course we all know these movies the um the mummy came a year later in 1932 and with that trio of movies of course universal introduced the new titans of horror that kind of took the place of lon chaney their er the early horror star he had actually already passed away by this time Uh, but those titans were of course bella lugosi and boris karloff but it wasn't universal who created the first zombie movie it was a couple of brothers uh, named victor and hedward halperin they were a director and a producer respectively and they created a movie a classic movie in 1932 called white zombie i've seen that um is that is that another uh, public domain one that we could slap our logo on and post it? Yeah, I'm not uh, sure about that. It's um, but it is readily available. It's very easy to find. Yeah, more human than human. You know yeah. that, right? Yeah. Right. Astro Creep 2000. I was just waiting for that joke. I'll yeah, it had to happen. I, I was gonna I was gonna back <laughs> off of it. I'm like, what are we even doing here if we don't like take that? low-hanging fruit we have to (laughs) and although white zombie was not produced by universal but they actually shot it on the cheap using old universal horror movie sets and of course it starred dracula himself bella lugosi Uh, it follows the rules of c brooks's book pretty closely Uh, lugosi plays a zombie master 
uh, who uses this powder that turns, he, it turns the living catatonic, which is a little bit different from what's going on in Seabrook's book. Uh, and then, of course, it keeps corpses resurrected as sort of slaves to work at his sugar mill. White Zombie was really successful, and it led to a lot of follow-ups, including one by the Halperins themselves called Revolt of the Zombies. That was in 1936. Uh, it does not hold up as well as White Zombie. And White Zombie itself, if you've ever seen it, is it's, it's fine. It's okay. It's, it's yeah. serviceable. It's, there's nothing truly special about it. Yeah, uh, actually, now that you, you mentioned that, Todd, and then we got here, I, I forgot that when I was looking at this earlier, there was like talks about in uh, 09 about Toby Hooper remaking White Zombie. Oh, yeah. oh man, that'd be cool. But but they ran into like there was a script and everything and there was something due to rights issues. But they were saying like the movie's public domain. Why is there rights issue? And I can't remember what we'd have to look more into it. Does Rob Zombie now own the name? Probably. I bet, I bet. that's what it I mean, is. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. I bet there's something there. Why but, doesn't he just read and it? And that's yeah. I mean, I was gonna say that's actually kind of ironic. And you know, he should just go ahead and Do pull the himself. trigger. Yeah. The As trigger I'm looking himself. at it here, actually, uh, screenwriter Jared Rivet, uh, who worked on a script in 2007 with Hooper, said the project was halted due to rights issues rivet explained that white zombie is clearly public domain but there were question marks about uncredited source material interesting though okay. uh, maybe we'll have to, about white zombie we'll have to dive into that one later uh, maybe in a new series down the line so 1936 also saw the release of the walking dead a movie starring boris karloff as one of the reanimated and that's a role he would also play in 1939's the man they could not hang uh, so the 30s and 40s saw a slew of Living Dead films. I mean, way too many for me to name here. There are dozens of them. They were very popular at the time, with most of the zombies in these movies behaving essentially like the ones in Seabrook's book. So in the 1950s, zombies sort of took a back seat to giant radioactive monsters, invaders from Mars, things like that, with a few exceptions, one of which was Ed Wood's infamous Plan 9 from Outer Space, which of course saw uh, Tor Johnson and Vampira as the reanimated dead. And they actually, if you've ever seen Plan 9, uh, which you should, it's super fun. They Ed actually- Ed Wood. What's that? I said Ed did see Ed Wood as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the way that they played the reanimated dead in that movie really resembles what Romero would end up doing later on, uh, a decade or a decade and a half later, more than just about any iteration of The Living Dead that had been put on screen so far. So it's actually kind of an interesting placeholder there in zombie history. Hmm. In 1962, Roger Corman got on the, uh, on the whole zombie train as well, sort of. I mean, his version of the, the Living Dead was in an adaptation of one of his, you know, one of the many Edgar Allan Poe adaptations that he did one called Tales of Terror that was a, uh, it was like an anthology film, you know, where it was, I think, three different Edgar Allan Poe stories. And in one of those stories, a reanimated Vincent Price appeared. It was a segment called The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar, which is actually a story that George Romero himself would adapt nearly 30 years later in the Dario Argento collaboration, Two Evil Eyes. It's worth mentioning here, just for a side note, um, this is kind of a carryover from our last show. Uh, so if, if this is the first time you're listening to us on episode one, 
Um, we appreciate you and sorry, but uh, Roger Corman's name comes up all the time. And I told my wife about this um, just because it kept coming up for us in Psychotronic Film Society. And uh, now that, that I've told her, we like, it's, there's an alert that goes off in brains every time he's mentioned. <laughs> and uh, she like points him out every single time. And it's a lot. It's, it's a, a lot, lot even when you don't even expect to see him. He always is somehow connected to whatever story behind behind the scenes stories on these genre films that we're looking in. Uh, almost oh, yeah. almost every movie, in, in as far as like genre stuff like this, has some sort of connection a couple degrees away from Roger Corman. I was actually just thinking it'd be fun to play like a degrees of Roger Corman yeah. game. It'd be easy. Yeah. We were like literally yeah. last week and watching like Elvira and there was a conversation about like Roger Corman's name comes up and she was like, Oh, I get what she's talking about now. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. So there were two other films that seems to really have had the most influence on Romero. One of those was 1961's Carnival of Souls directed by Herc Harvey. Carnival of Souls features these pretty like haunting images of they're not zombies, but they're zombie like phantoms that are kind of pursuing, chasing the heroine in that movie. And it certainly feels like a spiritual ancestor to Night of the Living Dead. And having been created by the operators of a commercial and industrial film house in this, you know, fairly small town of Lawrence, Kansas, may have also influenced Romero's business model, as we'll see here in a minute. Now, didn't Bella Lugosi also pursue his heroine? <laughs> Hey, that's why we have you on the show, Todd. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Performing can... all over the Southeast. <laughs> the other film that influenced Romero was 1964's The Last Man on Earth, which was based on Richard Matheson's novel, I Am Legend. And that may have been the biggest influence of all, or at least the novel itself was certainly an influence that Romero has stated time and again was a big influence on it. In that movie, it, that movie features slow-moving human corpses turned predators, uh, you've got boarded up windows and you see that, you know, the, the zombies or whatever they they're called in that movie, their hands bursting through the boarded up windows. There's an infected child. There are human bonfires, all kinds of elements that would soon be seen in Romero's film. In fact, the first time Richard Matheson saw Night of the Living Dead, he's watching it and going, huh, did they make another film version of I am legend and didn't tell me like that. It was that clearly influenced by it. Obviously the story is different, but a very heavy influence. Oddly enough. I mean, Romero wanted Will Smith initially for the role of of Ben. It was, uh, it was just unavailable. Yeah. Because he wasn't born yet. (laughs) He may have been born. I guess Will Smith's, he was a child. Let's say he was a child, a toddler. Will Smith's listening right now, and it's like, God dang, dude, how old do you think I am? <laughs> Will, Will Smith was born in 1968. The year of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, there you go. It was, so, it was fate. That's what that's called. <laughs> <laughs> but that I Am Legend, I mean, Romero has even stated that I Am Legend was more of an influence even than Seabrook's book or the even the, you know, the films that it sort of influenced because he didn't consider what he did zombies. Uh, like he's quoted as saying, he's like, zombies to me were those, you know, this is a quote from him, those bug-eyed cats from those movies from the 40s. And because that's how, that's how they would often portray them. They would have like the actors would actually have 
sort of prosthetic eyes, like the, these big bulging, unblinking eyes sometimes. It's very mm-hmm. strange. And um, I mean, like, I mean, there there's a lot of racial stuff in those uh, original zombie movies that are fairly problematic, including White Zombie itself. I think Bela Lugosi is supposed to be Asian in White Zombie, which is a whole other issue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, with our refresh here, I won't attempt to uh, do my impersonation of what that might have sounded like. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> the, year, the year is 2020. But I, I appreciate am, it. But I, on the other hand, here we go. No, just kidding. Just right. kidding. So fast forward a couple years, January 1967, you've got a 26-year-old George Romero. Uh, he's meeting with John Russo, Rudy Ricci. These are uh, all principal employees of a small Pittsburgh industrial film and commercial house that they had founded called The Latent Image. They meet over lunch. They're, they're, they're doing okay. The Latent Image is doing steady work, but it's not booming, you know. They were getting a lot of local commercial work and things like that. They did some work on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, uh, a good bit of work on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, actually. But they were, so they're kind of bemoaning their business struggles. And it's in this lunch that Russo makes the offhand remark that, hey, we should make a cheap feature-length film for the drive-in circuit. And they went through different genres. They went through, you know, hey, we can't do a Western. We don't know anybody that owns a horse. You know, so we can't really do that. Yeah. And things like that. They, they went back and forth on a few different genres. And these, these, these inexpensive genre films tended to be pretty profitable because, again, they were cheap to make and it was a, a pretty steady market in the drive throughs at the time. So it was a good way for budding filmmakers to make a quick buck, hopefully get a little bit of attention and be able to finance the next film, the movie they really want to make. You know, that was sort of their thinking. Well, that sounds kind of like the uh, the mo of guys like uh, Robert Rodriguez and Sam Raimi, especially right. at the start of their careers, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, luckily, the Latent Image had all the equipment that they might need to make a feature length movie. They had all the cameras, the lighting, all of that, but they still lacked the funds. Uh, now, the company, the the members of the company, were willing to shell out about six thousand dollars. It was about ten people, six hundred bucks a piece. They were going to throw in, but even nineteen sixties Pittsburgh, that was barely enough to even scrape together a thirty second commercial. So they started thinking, like, what kind of movie could we sell and could we make on such a low budget? So Russo suggested, "Hey, why don't we make a monster movie?" So they started thinking of ideas and the first concept that they had was let's say it's a far cry from the film that we would eventually be be getting. (laughs) Uh, So here's what Russo would recall about that first concept. (laughs) I lost my, uh... I've got it. The first concept, one that we all liked was about monsters from outer space. Only it was going to be a horror comedy instead of a horror drama. Some teenagers hot-rodding around the galaxy were going to get involved with teenagers from Earth, befriending them, while cartoon-like authority figures stumbled around trying to unearth clues to the crazy goings-on. The outer space teenagers were going to have a weird, funny pet called The Mess, a live garbage disposal that looked like a clump of spaghetti. You just toss empty pop cans, popsicle sticks, or whatever into the mess, and it ate them. There was also going to be a wacky sheriff called Sheriff Suck, who was, who was totally inept 
and kept being the butt of all the teenagers' jokes. Sheriff Sheriff? Suck later showed up in another movie. (laughs) I was like, who's going to get to it first? Sheriff Suck in the Mess are the name of Gary and Todd's uh, morning DJ duo. (laughs) (laughs) You're on Cinnamon Shock Broadcasting with Sheriff Suck. (laughs) The Mess. Oh, there's all this spaghetti. And you're here for another block of nothing but Nickelback. Yeah, it's it's Butt Rock Wednesday. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> uh, so this concept, as fun as it might sound, uh, it required special effects that the crew really could not afford. They weren't going to be able to shoot a space set, you know, drama. I, I love that they said it's just, you know, this is going to be a horror comedy, not a horror drama, but... Uh, I love that this was like, oh, what can we make really cheap? Let's set a movie in outer space. <laughs> like, <laughs> with, a, with a living clump of spaghetti. <laughs> so Russo later came up with a, a similar concept. Want to go for it again, Todd? Todd, that's uh, you now. Uh, you're okay. Russo. Now. Yeah, you're, okay. you're Russo now. I'm Russo. Ghoulish people or alien creatures would be feeding off the human corpses, setting them under the planes of glass so that the flesh would rapidly and properly decompose to suit the ghoul's tastes. Whatever we did should start in a cemetery because people find cemeteries spooky. I'm going to, if I, if I could just deliver a note here on episode one of Cinema Shock podcast, (laughs) When you're playing the same person, you should use the same voice. Did uh, I not? Idea. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was different. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll slightly different. Take. A little slightly different. different. Yeah. All right. All right. But that one had a little more, I don't know. The, the first had one a little had more, more like off in it. And the second one had a little more like late night horror host. Okay. Like, all right. But all right. like, like at a, on a public access station in Cl- in cleveland horror host not a good one but a late night horror host <laughs> so russo takes this vague idea to romero and romero likes it he comes back a few days later with 40 pages of script and these 40 pages would form the first half of what would eventually be called night of the living dead Yay. and so romero and then his and his colleagues from the latent image they formed the image 10 because there were 10 of them <laughs> the group oh, that's the group that w- would end up producing the film uh that group included romero russo and ricci of course with other latent image cohorts russell streiner who worked as a producer vince servinsky who was the production manager the production designer gary streiner who was russell's brother and also ran the sound on the film and then they had some friends named Carl Hardman, who actually had his own film company called Hardman Associates. He came on as a co-producer and an actor. And then Marilyn Eastman, who would end up doing not only acting, but makeup as well. There's a whole world of uh, places I want to go as a wrestling fan to talk to you about the Striner brothers. But I will, <laughs> I will, I will neglect no, that. Big Papa Pump. <laughs> <laughs> So the group kind of collectively brainstormed the second half of the story with scripting duties falling to Russo himself. And of course, directing duties ended up going to Romero. They kind of went back and forth on who would direct, but the way they kind of did things at the latent image at the time were 
hey, whoever was like the cameraman was the director. That's kind of how they did it. So Romero ended up being the cameraman and the director and the editor. He did all kinds of shit on this movie. Yeah, I saw where he, I mean, he had as many, almost as many credits as uh, Robert Rodriguez does. Yeah. Romero grew up as a movie fanatic in the Bronx. Uh, he became especially enthralled by horror movies as a kid, with his favorite being Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World. Uh, he actually tells a story where he was, he told his parents he was going to the prom when he was in high school. <laughs> and he dressed up in a tux and instead of going to the prom he went into the city and just watched movies all night <laughs> just watched horror movies all night which i think nice. is wonderful it's awesome uh, but he, he began his filmmaking career very early on at the age of 11 when his uncle gifted him an eight millimeter camera like so many filmmakers you hear about he started making movies at home as a kid but even as he continued to make homemade sci-fi films throughout his teens he didn't really ever like he didn't ever really see himself pursuing a career in filmmaking. For one, in Pittsburgh at the time, you couldn't really major in film. There was no film program. So he went to college at what is now Carnegie Mellon University. It had a different name. It was a technical college at the time. Uh, but he went to college to pursue an art major. You know, what's funny about him, too, is uh, I, I was actually watching this. Um, uh, what's the guy's name? Colin Geddes, I think is his name. Um, yeah. He was doing an interview with him uh, at TIFF, and uh, it was a really nice conversation they had. But uh, Romero was telling the story about how uh, when he was younger, um, basically, you know, obviously pre-VHS, they, you'd have to rent prints of a movie uh, to show it. And he was always, like, really into showing movies to his friends and that sort of thing. Um, one of the movies that was his favorite, his absolute favorite movie, he said at, at the time, he was like – he tells this long story short, he was going to the movies with his parents or his aunt and uncle or something. And he wanted to go see Tarzan. They made him go see this movie called the tales of Hoffman uh, by Michael Powell. And um, he hated them for that, but that has since become his favorite film of all time, I think. Oh. And um, so as he's telling the story, he talks about like, as he got a little older, he was like renting prints from the library and, uh, as he's renting prints, he would often go and rent the Tales of Hoffman. He loved renting that one over and over and showing it to whoever he could show it to. And uh, he said it was always easy because nobody ever wanted that movie. And he said, finally, he ran into this problem one day where he went and they were like, sorry, it's out. And he got really annoyed and he, uh, he, you know, went back the next week and they're like, yeah, it's, it's out again. Sorry. And like, he kept having this issue and, and he was like, man, this, he finally goes back and they're like, the, the movie's out. Sorry. And uh, he's like, every time I come here, this movie's here. And now I can't see this movie anymore. And they're like, yeah, there's this other kid named Scorsese who keeps coming in and written it every week. <laughs> oh man. That's awesome. I nice. love that. I love that. So as a college student, he did still, you know, had that filmmaking bug. And he actually tried to get some movies off the ground. One that he tried, and, and you got to think, Romero at the time, as much as he loved horror movies, he was kind of an art house movie kid as mm. well, as a, a love of a, a Michael Powell movie would, would indicate, actually. But so this movie that he tried to get off the ground while he was in college was one, it was called Wine of the Fawn. It was like medieval set film. Kind of, it, he described it as being in the vein of, Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring, which actually, if you are unaware, was actually the basis of, or the inspiration 
for Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. Oh, uh, okay, cool. Uh, but a very much more art, artsy, <laughs> artsy, fartsy version of it. Uh, but while he was doing, he was planning this movie, he was interviewing actors. And one actor that he actually interviewed on it was a young guy who, who was trying to break into the industry that would later become a special effects master by the name of Tom Savini. Ah, there you go. I thought that was super interesting. Like they, yeah. Savini was from Pittsburgh as well. So their, their paths were crossing pretty early on in both of their careers. That movie never got made, of course, and they, it would be years later before they actually collaborated. But I thought that was really fun, really interesting, something I never knew before. Nice. Uh, yeah. Here's actually what Savini had to say about that. Uh, George came to my high school audition, people. Later, I approached him about doing the makeup for his Night of the Living Dead. He was so busy, I followed him around the studio, flipping pages of my portfolio. He said, yeah, man, we could use you. Unfortunately, they called me to go into the Army right before George shot. So when he did that, I was in Vietnam. I like that you say Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how Savini says it. I should have researched that prior. but I... He says it a lot, so he, he, he will – often remind you that he was in vietnam it was uh, crazy what i was thinking about the idea that even at the end of this movie there's like actual photos from the situation i was like oh man he was like a combat yeah. photographer it would have been cool if like savini had done this because he would yeah. know exactly how to line those shots up and all of that stuff it would have been cool i thought that was really interesting so because he had like he had auditioned for this role in, in the wine of the fawn and wasn't able to do it. So, and he, but he still knew Romero, and I mean, he didn't know him before then. But he was like, "Man, I, you know, as a, a director in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh was not like a filmmaking community." Uh, and he's like, "Yeah, man, I also do special effects." And that's when he started showing his his portfolio uh, for Night of the Living Dead. But their their collaboration could have started much much earlier, if not for you know war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'll, that'll ruin your weekend. Yeah. So the, the group eventually got 10 additional investors. They brought the budget up to a whopping 12 grand. <laughs> it, it would eventually get more. I think the total all in all, when all was said and done, was a little over 100 grand, uh, which is still relatively inexpensive, even in 1968 terms for a feature film. It's kind of crazy to think about, though, when you look at this, um, you know, despite all the things we can say about what this movie really is, um, I think indie movies owe a big thank you to this movie. Like it yeah. wasn't the first independent movie ever, but like, it seems like an early example of crowdfunding mm -hmm. and it's be super successful or successful outside of the Hollywood system, that sort of thing. It just, yeah, it's true. It's kind and of it, interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it, it would end up being a major inspiration for other regional filmmakers saying like you don't have to be in hollywood to make a, a hit movie you can be in pittsburgh or you know todd mentioned robert rodriguez earlier you can be in austin texas and do everything you need to do in austin texas instead of going to hollywood or going to new york right yeah yeah absolutely but so they, they had their budget but they still needed a house where the bulk of the film's action would take place and on such a small budget they, they couldn't afford to just like build an entire house set only to destroy it and tear it down by the end of it. Luckily, uh, an intern at the Leighton Image found an old farmhouse that was set to be bulldozed. And it was perfect. It was exactly what they needed. And the owner agreed to rent it to them for 300 bucks a month, 
just for the few months that they needed it. And then he would bulldoze it when they were done. So nice. with a location secured, the crew dove headfirst into production. Many of the Image 10 members were pulling double or triple duties. So you've got Romero, as I mentioned, he's directing, but he's also, he's uncredited, but he is also the film's cinematographer, camera operator, and editor. Carl Hardman, producer uh, from Hardman and Associates. He also worked as a still photographer on the film and he played the role of Harry Cooper. He's in, the, he's one of the main characters in the film. Nice. And you'll see that's a pretty common occurrence on the set of Night of the Living Dead with acting duties often being given to producers or other late image cohorts because it saved them money. Like, hey, we're already paying you to produce might as well put you on screen. Then we don't, that's another actor we don't have to hire and pay. Well, yeah, I mean, and that, that seems to be uh, the norm for most indie, indie films, you know, starting off, uh, everybody's pulling double and triple duty. Yeah. Well, yeah, and his yeah. daughter is the daughter in the movie, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, but for the lead role, they needed a, a legitimate actor, a legitimate leading man, although that wasn't originally the plan. Uh, it was originally, so the, the role, the lead role of Ben was originally written as a rough and tough, like tough talking trucker type guy. And it was envisioned for Rudy Ricci, uh, another Leighton 10 member and, or actually a, a Leighton Image founder. Uh, he was going to play that role, but they were still doing auditions. And when a 31 year old black man by the name of Dwayne Jones auditioned for the role, everyone was sort of blown away. Dwayne Jones was an actor from New York and, a, and an acting teacher. And they watched him and they're like, everyone, in, including Ricci, were like, this is the guy. This is the guy for the role. Now, Romero was always adamant that he did not write Night of the Living Dead to be any sort of social commentary. Uh, he has said multiple times that he, you know, he didn't cast... Dwayne Jones, because he was black, he was simply the best actor for the role. Uh, and I, you know, I agree with, I, I believe him to an extent, at least. I, I do think that he probably, once they cast him, he knew he had something special going on. But he did make the conscious decision not to rewrite any of the story just because Jones happened to be black. He yeah, wasn't trying to make it a social commentary on race. Yeah, um, it's strange. I mean, there, there are obviously, there are things that, that Jones does that are impacted by race. Uh, Absolutely, yes. But, but yeah, I, George talks about, you know, in his stories, it's just like driving to deliver a print and then hearing that Martin Luther King was well, shot. That, yeah, that was when he was actually shopping the print around. He was on his way to Columbia Pictures to... Uh, to try to sell the film after it was shot and he heard about Martin Luther King being assassinated. And he knew that like that would impact the way people watch the film. Right. Right. And Romero even says, he says, this is a, a direct quote, perhaps night of the living dead is the first film to have a black man playing the lead role, regardless of rather than because of his race. So the role was not written as a black man. Uh, that's not, that, that statement's not strictly true. He wasn't the first. Sidney Poitier had done it a couple of times in 1965 and 1966 in a movie called The Bedford Incident and Duel at Diablo. These were movies that were not necessarily written like 
the race was not written into the role, you know, mm-hmm. but still it was significant, you know, and Jones did decide to rewrite a lot of his own dialogue. Uh, ben as written was this sort of t- stereotypical tr- uh, trucker type, you know, speaking in kind of redneck slang, like, you know, you can find uh, this book that, that I quoted earlier, has a really good side-by-side of a, a specific scene from the film. It's from Ben's big like monologue as it was originally written and as it was original, as it was performed. And it's a vastly different with all the same information, but vastly different in, in dialogue because mm-hmm. that trucker spoke in this sort of broken, like hillbilly slang, you know, and yeah. Jones was a well-spoken, well-educated man. And he intended to play Ben as that kind of character. And he also knew that if he played it, if he, if he read the dialogue as written, he's going to come across as a stereotype because he was written as a stereotype. And yeah. there's one thing that a black man in 1968 does not want to come across. Uh, and that's a, a stereotype because they were, right. he, he, he knows that he's still trying to find his foothold, but black people in 1968, this is the middle of the civil rights era are trying to find their foothold in film and being presented in a way that's not like the, the mammy characters from gone with the wind, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, what, what's sad about the whole thing? I mean, I, I guess it's not really sad because I think the guy was happy, but uh, Dwayne Jones is, it was, is kind of a, or he, he's passed away. Unfortunately. I mean, he was only like 50 something, but yeah, he had yeah. a heart attack pretty young. Yeah, but he um, you know, was relatively quiet about it. I mean, he became an educator, worked in New York. and, and Well, he, he was a teacher at the time, but he, um, yeah, he continued. He acted in a few other films after this, like Ganja and Hess uh, is probably the most well-known movie, that, which is a vampire movie that actually Spike Lee remade as uh, The Sweet Blood of Jesus about three, four years ago. Um, but yeah, he mostly focused on teaching acting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can actually you can actually sum up his filmography almost on one hand. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's pretty short. And I, but I, but I, I, I did a little digging on him because I was really curious about this guy and then being such an iconic part of history. You know, you're, you're you can find like interviews with him, um, a few that were done here and there, and and there's some recorded stuff on YouTube you can hear with him. Um, but but it is interesting what you're talking about with the dialogue because I, I was listening to him. I was like, he sounds a bit like Barack Obama almost, like the way his dialogue is delivered. Yeah. Like he he almost sounds exactly like him. And uh, it, he he does say in quotes you'll see from him is that it never occurred to me that I was hired because I was black, but it did occur to me that because I was black, it would give a different different historic element to this film. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he was aware of it. Um, yeah, exactly. He, he described that, you know, Ben as written, uh, I think, I think even Romero described it as like the best way they could describe it was uh, he's a little rough around the edges. Um, the example Romero give in some interviews is that there's the phone scene where like Ben walks in and says that like, you know, he checks the phones like originally as written, it was like, well, I guess you already done this or something like that. But like, he comes in and says, well, I suppose you've already tried this. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, so he just delivers it a little more nice. I don't know. Eloquent, <laughs> a little more eloquent. Eloquent. Yeah. That's the word for it. Yeah. He, um, he, he tells some stories like there, like you said, there aren't a ton of interviews with him. Uh, but he does tell stories about how 
like for instance uh there was a time when they were leaving the set and one of like the production assistants or somebody was driving him home and there was a car like tailing them guys hanging out the window with a tire iron like they were following them because they saw like a white woman and a black man in a car together and he knew i mean they, they were you know they were in the north so it was a little more probably progressive than if they'd been shooting in the south but it was you know still like he knew like the impact of what he was doing yeah and it's it, it's kind of a shame that he didn't embrace it more later on although I, I i understand an actor not wanting to be stereotyped or, or like pigeonholed into a, a horror role because like i said his only other or his other major well-known role is also another horror film but it, he, he tells a really fun story about when he was in new york years later teaching him and some students went out after class one day and they were like outside of a bar or something and night of the living dead was playing on a television <laughs> and one of and he kept kind of glancing up at the tv and see you know, how could you not uh, like a movie with me on it's on the tv how do you not look at it but he's kind of yeah. glancing up <laughs> at it and one of the students actually said oh man whatever happened to that guy <laughs> and he never told them he never like said, oh he never said, he never said. I, no he, he never yeah i heard that same story and it's crazy and it's like oh, a, wow. in a, a similar interview where where he talks about that they ask him about like some of his biggest memories from the movie and it's just he's very self-aware so i don't want anything to, that i'm saying to sound like he was a pretentious guy or something or thought that he was better because he's he's, he's often in a couple of the interviews i read he, he makes a point to say, I'm, I am grateful for the opportunities I've been given. I know why you're talking to me, and I am respectful of that in my life, but I don't hang everything in my life on that. And uh, so he's, 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 you know, self-aware. And so, but they talk about, like, what, what's, like, some of your fondest memories or what's one of the things that stands out? And, like, one of his memories is literally – he said one of the things he remembers most is being on the set and he and uh, Barbara are like hanging out and talking and like some of the set members and um, a butterfly landed on a windowsill and they were just staring at the butterfly and just thinking, yeah, I've heard this, this story, a really beautiful <laughs> butterfly. And then one of the uh, people on, on the crew thought it would be funny and comes by and just smashes the butterfly. And, and everyone's like, why the fuck did you do that? Yeah, and he said then everyone, in the middle of this zombie movie, in the middle of, like, all the stuff they're doing, it's just like, wow. what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> like, why would you kill this beautiful thing? Like, why would yeah. you do that? And uh, he just always remembers that moment as, like, really standing out to him. It's like, despite what the movie is or anything else, it's like, that guy killed a butterfly and they were all just kind of like wait what the hell <laughs> yeah. bummed, super bummed out about it so moving forward with casting romero originally wanted betty amberlin or aberlin excuse me for the role of barbara i was about uh, to aberlin, say come on <laughs> aberlin was better known of course as lady aberlin on the pittsburgh-based mr rogers neighborhood uh, oh. as i mentioned before the late image had done quite a bit of work for them. Uh, one uh, kind of famous 
Romero quote was he, he shot the Mr. Rogers gets a tonsillectomy segment on one of those early episodes. Oh, and wow. Romero has said in multiple interviews, he's like, that was probably the scariest thing I shot for my entire career. <laughs> <laughs> but she ended up passing on the role. I don't know why the author of, of the book that I read for this, uh, Joe Kane, speculates that maybe Mr. Rogers himself was maybe a little overprotective and didn't want his one of his cast members in a horror movie. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, he doesn't back that up with any facts, but that was sort of his speculation on it, which I could totally see yeah. uh, happening. So the role ended up going to Judith O'Day. She was a young actress. She was actually a voiceover artist, voiceover specialist. And her brother, Johnny was played by Night of the Living Dead producer and Leighton Image co-founder, Rush Strainer. Well, I'd just like to give a huge shout out to Judith O'Day for managing to secure the role as one of my least favorite horror movie characters. I know uh, you hate this role, Gary. And I, <laughs> I, I, take, I take some issue with that. I, I take some issue with that because I get that she is a little bit annoying. Well, here's the but thing. Cat, that that Cat. is an undersell. <laughs> <laughs> she is going through a traumatic experience. She just saw her brother get murdered. Uh, so I, I think that I feel like you're not giving her the sympathy that is deserved <laughs> after what she has literally watched her brother get his head smashed on a gravestone, was chased by a corpse, and then continues to be assaulted by the living dead. Well, I part mean, of I, me I for being, being offended in that if shock, you're in, in, a, in a room full of people that are like their survival instinct has kicked in, there's one person that still wants to whine about it. There, you, you don't know you don't know how you would react in something like that though some people shut down she is clearly in shock for the entire film so you don't i mean you could say that but you could be in that situation gary and shit your pants and be in the be catatonic on the couch for most of the movie like she is well i hope that that's not true and i don't appreciate you categorizing the person in his pants in a zombie apocalypse but. <laughs> I'd like to think that I would throw that shit at the zombies. <laughs> I've, I've no doubt if we'd have been talking about eight-legged freaks or arachnophobia, I would have just, I would have done everyone a favor in either of those movies and just blown my face off. But <laughs> you would have been the Barbara of those of of arachnophobia, right? <laughs> so well, Cat yeah, well, actually, uh, my wife Cat wanted me to ask you guys: um, is is she definitively the most annoying horror movie character of all time? Or do you guys think there's somebody else who takes the crown? I'll tell you what, when I was watching this, I posted uh, an image or something and I said, fuck you, Barbara, or something in my Instagram stories. <laughs> and I got comments back from women, mind you, that were like, Barbara could suck a fat cock. <laughs> like, wow. Things like that. So it wasn't even just like dudes being dudes. Like it was like actual ladies were responding back like, fuck her. Screw Barbara. I, I think Barbara deserves a lot more sympathy than you're giving her. I, I think that she is, I think she, I mean, she's going, she is in shock for the whole movie. And that would happen to a lot of people in this situation. They would go into shock. Uh, you know, so I, I think that, yeah. giving, that that just saying that she's being annoying is unfair. I mean, I get that she is not being useful, but a lot of people would not be useful in this situation. Also, I'd rather be in that room with her than with Harry Cooper. Yeah, true. I guess sure. 
Also, well, but more annoying horror movie characters, I'm going to say Stu from Scream. And I love Scream, but fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Lillard? Uh, I don't know. He's still kind of funny, at least. Um, <laughs> I do I do quote Liver Alone at least once a week. <laughs> I was about to say, he's still got some good <laughs> At least lines. once a week. No, none of the one-liners go to any main characters in this movie. It's like, I'm coming to get you, Barb, or they're coming to get you, Barbara, and, like, the sheriff saying, they're, yeah, they're... They're dead. all messed up. They're all messed up. But, <laughs> and so that's weird. Like, the people that have, like, 10 minutes of screen time. It's true, being, yeah. Uh, quotable lines. But I, I don't know. You know, like, I get it. It, it just... Uh, she's just... She's a lot to handle. And, <laughs> by the way, though... For, for what it's worth, I mean, this is another example of uh, the interaction between Ben and Barbara is really paramount to, like, some of the racial tension that was going on at the time. I mean, for this sure. is stuff that they mm-hmm. – where, where when you hear stories back that these people knew there was something here, at least, because they, they talk about their stories on the set of, like, him – carrying her and laying her down on the couch and unbuttoning her coat or something that like there would be they knew immediately when they filmed that that there would be like hicks and hillbillies like oh he's gonna rape her or something you know right. just like yeah. yeah crazy stuff i i've read plenty of stories about that even about uh where ben gets slapped by her a couple yeah. of, well he like, didn't want to do it yeah and, 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 and i think originally in the script he, he gets slapped like three times and he told them he's like there's no way i'd let the uh, i'm sorry but Dwayne Jones is like i'm not gonna let the white lady hit me in the face three times and not hit her back like yeah. i'm not yeah <laughs> and he knew and he didn't really want to he didn't want to do the scene where he hits her because he knew that'd be a problem he had to be talked into it by george romero yeah wow yeah. and uh so just interesting stuff there that like the chemistry i mean and you can imagine i mean just especially in that time that like the the black man and the white woman and stuff it's just it's weird it's it's i mean i want to say it's hard to believe now but maybe it's not (laughs) Um, (laughs) unfortunately unfortunately yeah so the roles of harry and helen cooper those went to carl hardman and marilyn eastman who we mentioned earlier hardman who was a producer on the film ran the uh, the company hardman associates where at hardman associates he employed a 19 year old receptionist named judith riley Uh, excuse me judith ridley Ridley had been considered for the role of Barbara, but she ended up being assigned the role of Judy, and Ridley was not an actress. Uh, she even will fully admit that, that she, she, you know, she was not, she's not very, she's not particularly good in the movie, honestly. But she, <laughs> and she I mean, she'll admit that. She's in uh, Romero's follow-up film, There's Always Vanilla as well, and she says the same thing about that, too. It's, it's funny, though, just because I, I do see that same thing, and I, I just don't. I, she didn't stand out to me. She's honestly. not horrible, but yeah, she's, yeah. Not, like, yeah. she's not good. Uh, she's better than the guy who plays Tom. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really bad and never appeared in another movie before. Uh, a- after this, I'm sorry. Never appeared in another movie. So he's literally done one. Uh, but one of, of course, the most iconic roles in the film was played by Carl Hardman's real life daughter, Kira Sean, who he plays the Cooper's daughter in the film, the little girl who gets turned into a zombie and she sort of became the de facto mascot for the film. She's on the posters. If you buy a Night of the Living Dead t-shirt, she's on the t-shirt. She's on the cover of the VHS or the DVD or whatever. It's mm-hmm. usually her. Pretty much anything associated with the film is kind of designed around her face. Yeah, She kind of yeah. became the iconic image from the movie. 
there's yeah. there's something to her. I mean, even to this day, like watching it literally two days ago when I watched it or whatever, it just there's something about her that is extra. Yeah. Just it's it's a little bit more than everyone else, and I, and I don't know that it's just the little girl part of it or daughter or you know like like matricide or whatever you call it. Um, well, I think that's a big part of it because that is a truly shocking scene, even in 1968. Yeah. I mean, that seeing a little girl murder her mother and eating her father like that, and for audiences in 1968, that was yeah, that was like very shocking. It's it still has an impact today. Well, I was gonna yeah. say, yeah, I mean, it's easy to say like, oh, in 1968, you can imagine this like blows their minds, but even now, like watching that part of it, like that's one of the more visceral like. Yeah, hard scenes in the yeah. film. It's, it's it is. It still and, works. And she does have she does have some sort of an undefinable, eerie photogenic quality that it's it's understandable why she's so iconic in terms of that image related to this film. Absolutely, absolutely. So the next step, of course, was they had to cast a bunch of ghouls. That's what Romero called them in this film, not zombies. Like I said, he, he didn't know he was making a zombie movie. Uh, he called them ghouls. So they, they needed to get a bunch of people to dress up as dead corpses, basically. The movie employed about 250 ghouls in all. Uh, a lot of those were played by volunteers from Evans City, Pennsylvania, which is where they were filming, who were just excited to be in a movie. They were just volunteers. They weren't really getting paid. They just were like, hey, we're making a movie. I want to be in a movie. Uh, there's a really fun uh there's a really fun documentary that interviews a lot of the people who played ghouls in the film that you can find online it's it's really fun it's called uh do not document of the dead i can't fucking remember i didn't write it down <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds like another one of the romero zombie films well it's it's um it's there are portions of that documentary that are special features on the criterion release of night of the living dead so you can find them on there which is where i saw it so some of the ghouls were played by actors who played other roles in the film. You know, you've got, of course, you, you had someone that needed to, you had to have somebody who actually would turn them from humans into ghouls. And with, you know, Tom Savini's off in Vietnam, he couldn't do it. So the job went to Marilyn Eastman, the actress who played Helen Cooper. And she ended up, she used this like, clay that they use on that morticians use on on dead bodies to, to like you know reshape i don't fucking know whether to reshape their <laughs> face whatever morticians do but they use that as for some of the like gore effects and things like that so very kind of lo-fi version of what savini would later do but you know for the film it works yeah absolutely because i mean it, you know you reshape the bro the bone structure or you make big gaping wounds with it and or just make it look like the skin's sort of rotting away and you got you can turn one actor into several or just give them those cheekbones they always wish they had <laughs> so with all the pieces in place the filmmakers were ready to start shooting unfortunately by the time they had all the pieces in place it was the middle of winter in pennsylvania with pennsylvania winters are not particularly forgiving uh they are uh, they're hard on the cast and crew, of course, but also on the equipment. At one point, Romero and Russo took the camera out for a little test shoot, and the camera's motor froze. 
completely from the cold. So they're like, okay, maybe we should wait a little bit and do this later on. So shooting finally commenced in June of 1967 under the name Night of the Flesh Eaters. Uh, that was later changed to Night of Anubis, like the, the Egyptian god of death. Uh, and then, of course, was changed later on before the film got released. The film shot for about 30 days. But those days were, it wasn't like 30 consecutive days. Those were 30 days spread out mostly on weekends for a period of about seven months. So they shot for quite a while. The majority of the shoot was filmed on old 35 millimeter, uh, an Aeroflex camera. Now, that's not something we normally want to get into. That's the equipment used can be kind of boring, you know. But the reason I mention it here is because the, the type of camera is notable in this case because an Aeroflex is a pretty small camera. It, it holds a much smaller film reel, uh, about 100 feet of film, as opposed to a, a more traditional movie camera, which holds about 400 feet. So it could be carried on the shoulder. Uh, they could carry it around. But, and that ability contributes to the look of the film and that kind of documentary handheld feel that you get to so many of the scenes in the movie. Yeah, it definitely lends to the authenticity of it. Well, yeah, and I, I saw like with like budget, and I mean, this may be sort of, I mean, it's obviously sort of related, but you know, they, I, I read some stuff about how they were uh, shooting on 35 millimeter print and you couldn't even really edit on that size print at that time. Um, and it was something like they would have to uh, transfer the footage to 16 millimeter to do actual edits. So they were just kind of trusting um that George was just getting the right shot that huh. the whole time that it was, it was, you know, I think that was a interview I saw with Russo where he talks about like, they just had to kind of go by his vision that, that he knew what he was getting. Hope that it was framed correctly. Right. Huh. And, and another choice that they made was using black and white film. That was more of an aesthetic choice than a budgetary one. Although that was obviously going to be a deciding factor as well, because black and white is much cheaper but that using black and white helped to further the stark, like cinema verite style that they were going for in the film. And it also helped with the application of makeup because for one, the, if the makeup color, like the color of the prosthetic was a little off from the actor's skin color, it's not going to show so much on black and white, but also like in the case of the blood scene in the film, depending on what they needed the blood to do, they would either use red ink or they would use Bosco chocolate syrup. <laughs> so for some of the scenes you see, it's chocolate syrup. And on black and white, they read as the same color. You know what's funny about that is I actually didn't know this. So this is interesting. Um, I, I was curious, and I, I meant to look it up before, and I never did, that, you know, was color like a pretty popular option during that time or whatever? For sure, yeah. And uh, I just, I, I, you know. By 1968, I mean, color was very much the norm. Honestly. Well, I'm an idiot. I don't know. So <laughs> I, was like, I mean, it didn't happen. Well, know. I mean, even in 1960, when, when Hitchcock shot Psycho, he had already shot color films. He shot gotcha. Psycho in black and white. That was an aesthetic choice that Hitchcock made when he shot Psycho. And well, the reason I bring it up later. is I, I read like an essay about Night of the Living Dead. And one of the things that compliments the movie on is the choice to shoot in black and white. It was saying that to a lot of viewers at the time, um, it said in 68, still a lot of news broadcasts were done in black and white. 
And yeah. it talked about that this would give it more of a documentary feel and important that it was like set in a realistic environment. Sure. And people's television sets at home were in black and white. Right. You know, so you were seeing color on the big screen, but that gives it that newsreel feel because people yeah. were used to seeing newsreels in black and white. And with the handheld, with the handheld camera, this uh, was dangerously close to being like a found footage type film. I mean, it's got that, that feel to it for sure. Yeah. So once the decision was made to shoot in black and white, Romero decided he'd go for kind of a Val Luton vibe for the film. And Val Luton is someone that we will ex definitely explore later on, on this podcast. Uh, Cause I think he's one of the, like the foundational pieces of, of horror. But what Romero did is he used, he used what's called gobos, which are basically black and white, or I'm sorry, it's black paper with like shapes cut out so that you get this really dramatic lighting that wouldn't occur naturally in any other way. So it's, it's, and so that's kind of what they did on this film. Shooting at intervals, you know, over the course of seven months also added to the difficulties of shooting because there were times, you know, weeks, they wouldn't be at the farmhouse for a week and vandals would break in and they'd break windows. They, they would mess with these mannequins. They had these mannequins that were stored there that they would dress up as ghouls to put in like the backgrounds of some scenes. So the vandals would fuck with those and stuff. But there were also times when shooting was more regular, so regular in fact, and so chaotic that the, a lot of the principal cast and crew members camped out in the farmhouse. Now this is a farmhouse that it's old, but it's, it's got no modern amenities. There's no running water for one thing. Uh, there's no, heating and air uh, they would actually have to use there was a nearby well that they would have actually have to gather water from just so that they could flush the toilets in the farmhouse so it was you know kind of a kind of a rough time every now and then on shooting yeah there's stories with like russo having to like boil he talks about boiling water every night and that sort of thing and uh yeah like you said like the sleeping on cots and stuff like that um the the overlaps of this and the story of the production of the first evil dead movie are getting bigger yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very similar production in that it's very, very homemade. Although I think this had a slightly bigger crew probably than the Evil Dead did. They talk about, uh, Bruce, talked about having to take cat baths every night or whatever. And that's uh, where you lick yourself. I think that's what I was just wondering. But I had that quote. But uh, they said that Romero like, never did laundry, he just bought new clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to do it, I guess. Uh, I guess. Uh, don't don't knock a cat bath until you try it. <laughs> and, and you're talking about the interval thing. I mean, I, there's instances where I think, uh, God, I wish I could remember the scene now. But they talk about like two two people are like both facing left to like talk to each other. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that, that's there are a few moments in the film, actually quite a few, where there are mistakes. You know, and that's one of that's a big one actually. Although I didn't notice that for the longest time. I, I, I don't, and I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, but the line of sight, like where one person's looking and another person, normally there's a line of sight where you want those to line up where it looks like they're looking at each other. But there's a scene like specifically, there's a big one where Ben is talking to Harry and they're both like looking, they're not looking at each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. uh, and that happens a lot. Like there's one where Ben is talking about, Oh, now we've got all the windows boarded up. We're good to go. He's talking to, to, uh, 
Barbara, and there's clearly an unboarded window in the background. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so little things like that. But again, this is a bunch of first-time crew members. Well, I mean, and, that's how that's how Romero writes. Oh, he's like, what do you want me to do? We didn't have a way to keep track of that stuff. Yeah, so, that's that's how it happens. So, of course, aside from the zombie makeup, there were other special effects that they had to consider, uh, mostly the gore. So, for the ghouls' feast on Tom and Judy, the big, the, they call it the final, the, the Last Supper or something like that, I think is what they referred to it as, where the, you, you just had these multiple shots of zombies eating entrails. The meat being eaten was all lamb organs. They, uh, so, one of the film's investors was actually a guy who owned a local meat market chain. He was a butcher. So he just had all this, you know, extra livers and shit lying around. So he donated them to the cast and crew. And so when you see these extras and these, these you know, people who are dressed up as ghouls biting into like a liver, they're biting into a raw lamb liver. <laughs> that's, that's, that is, dedi- that's dedication. Is well, that stuff yeah. up- when they're talking about the, the farmhouse, like sleeping in the farmhouse, I remember like one of the stories from Russo was like waking up and like he just like woke up and walked out the first or like one of the mornings and uh, Vincent Servinsky is sitting on the front porch and he's pouring water down lamb intestines. <laughs> yeah, like, they filled them with water to make them look like more plump and juicy. Yeah, he's like, this yeah. makes it more cinematic. And he's mm-hmm. just like, he said he just like turns around and like, now who wants to film an indie movie? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Vince Servinsky, who you're here talking about, the production designer, he had a brother named Regis, Regis Servinsky, who was a professional fireworks expert, along with a, a partner of his. They had a, a explosives company, basically. And they rigged bullet squibs in the zombies. Now, squibs, if you're unaware, they're very common now. They're very small explosive charges, usually attached to little blood bags so that like somebody gets shot, it looks like you know, a hole going into them. Although those are pretty common now, although these days a lot of people are doing CGI squibs, which suck. Uh, right. but, but they were pretty rare at the time, especially in something as low budget as Night of the Living Dead. Uh, they would use heavily in Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, which had not been released at the time that night was being filmed, although it came out earlier, uh, the end of that movie, there's a pretty heavy use of squibs and then would be further popularized in excessive use in Sam Peck and Paws, the wild bunch, which came out in 1969. And then of course there was the film's biggest effect of all, which was the exploding truck. So Regis Servinsky rigged up an old panel truck. It's the truck that they bought for like 45 bucks uh, and they basically just kept trying out different things to, till they got the result they wanted. But he basically made a bomb on this truck. And they filled the truck with like old wood and carpet and things like that so they would have debris to explode. And they only had one take because they only had one truck. So Romero set up like three different cameras so that he could make sure that he properly captured the explosion and honestly it looks great on film i think i think it's for a for a film that is as small as this it's a pretty impressive special effect that 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 particular effect the exploding truck was something i've noticed because i just you know i didn't go over any notes or read the wikipedia page before sitting down to watch this again but i knew it was a low budget and seeing that i was like that was probably pretty expensive so Yeah, it, it does look but it really wasn't. good. It was $45 and some bombs. Nice. <laughs> I don't know what bombs cost. 
<laughs> yeah, ne neither neither do I. I don't know. Gary doesn't know. None of us none of us here at Cinema Shock know how much bombs cost. <laughs> I, I don't. I never blow up nothing. <laughs> so for another potentially even more dangerous scene, they needed uh, they needed Carl Hardman. Harry Cooper to toss Molotov cocktails as zombies. You know, there's a scene where Ben's running out and he's tossing them from the, the upper floor. So how did they achieve this effect? You might be wondering. Well, they had, wondering. they had Carl Hardman toss Molotov cocktails at zombies. Well, uh, uh, people playing zombies. Uh, he, nobody ever thought to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. <laughs> maybe somebody's going to get hurt. Maybe somebody's going to catch on fire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily, only one person caught on fire, and it was actually on purpose. So John Russo decided, he's like, you know, if somebody doesn't catch on fire, this scene's not going to be believable. All the, these, you know, these slow-moving ghouls shambling towards the fire, one of them's got to hit a zombie and catch him on fire. So he volunteered to be that zombie. He's like, I'll do it. John Russo, by the way, not a stuntman. I mean, he's an actor. He's a producer. He's not a stuntman. He's not wearing any protective gear. I think he wore a couple extra layers underneath his suit or whatever, but he's not wearing like fire retardant gel, like modern day <laughs> stuntmen would wear. He's literally, they just literally set the guy on fire. And then he's like, when I started feeling really hot, I just dropped on the ground, stop, drop and roll. They threw some blankets on me and put it out. That was their <laughs> form of stunt work on this film. Wow. I mean, that's really how, like, even today, though, like, fire scenes go. They, those guys are slathered in film retardant gel. Well, right? well, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I, 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 I just watched, protection. like, a, a whole thing about Kane Hodder. So, we're I, I don't know, for some reason it was in my brain. And they talked about even through the gel, like, when you feel hot, drop. Like, that's, yeah. that's what it's supposed to happen. Because yeah. the weird thing about flames he talks about it's like hot studs it's like yeah well and that it can burn long after the flame is actually gone oddly enough so oh, he's like you wow. know even if he's like the second you feel hot at a fire stunt you have to like immediately signal because like even once they put it out it can still somehow burn you um, yeah. and uh it's just interesting i don't know we'll have to get kane on sometime <laughs> yeah we'll do that so i should also i should i guess say that russo was the only one to be caught on fire in that particular scene uh gary striner of the striner brothers the film sound man uh who one day he just happened to be working as like basically an impromptu prop master and he was in charge of preparing the chair that ben sets on fire and kicks out the door you know and he sets himself on fire <laughs> on accident <laughs> oh gary Jesus. <laughs> Those fucking Gary's. <laughs> Luckily, Bill Hensman, the guy who plays the cemetery zombie at the beginning of the film, who was another member of the Image 10, he was on set and he actually like tackled Strineman and put out the fire before he could really be hurt. But Jeez. yeah, he just accidentally said, I mean, that's what happens when you literally like squirt a bunch of lighter fluid on a chair and then set it on fire. Yeah. So what was happening <laughs> is he was actually supposed to be adding more flammable liquid, lighter fluid or gas, whatever they're using to the fire. And of course the fire jumped up the stream and caught him on fire. So luckily he was okay. Nice. When the you, always gotta be, you always gotta be careful crossing the streams. 
<laughs> with this thank you, thank you, truck uh, yeah. blows up. They're eating ham covered in chocolate sauce. And the I think it was ground ham. Yeah. Ground burger or something. Which and, sounds uh, disgusting. Yeah. Well, and it was. It, it was for, for the people, especially eating it. And uh, the, the filmmakers, like in some of the stuff, like joke about that. Uh, we almost didn't have to use makeup because they were all just like white and pale anyway. <laughs> just, like, terrible, <laughs> like just munching on this shit. <laughs> so, although a lot of the members of the Latent Image were they were skilled in various various aspects of film production, you know, like we said, some you know, you've got a guy doing sound and doing a prop master. You've got someone editing, shooting, directing. Everyone's doing all kinds of things. None of them were musicians, but they tried. Like they tried to create their own film they had like russo on the drums and you know they're they couldn't afford to hire anyone to do an original score for the film so they were like you know we've done everything else ourselves let's try to do this it didn't work <laughs> so and they realized it wasn't going to work so what they ended up doing is using library music uh that was something that was kind of common in the 40s and 50s where uh studios uh, would have like archives of music that you could buy and it was a lot cheaper than the cost of getting an original score recorded. So Hardman and Romero, they, they work with Capitol Records and they get all, all these scores, all this, uh, all this music, and basically they have to sift through all of it and use it in the film and figure out how it works. Jeez. And it's pretty impressive because the music in this works really well. Yeah, uh, they did a great job. That that is a, I mean, Romero, I th seems to get most of the credit for it, but he has a hell of an ear for how music works in a film because to use somebody else's film music in the way that he uses it here is is very impressive. Well, he he talks about a lot. Like he he refers to it as needle drops, which we've we've used or will use on the show multiple times. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. but um, he's he, he talks about like you could pay for like. Uh, where the needle drops to like where you pick it up or something like it. it right. Uh, but he, uh, he, he described it like, I mean, in one of the interviews I saw with him, I mean, it must've been 2012 um, that he was saying he still did it to that day. Like every time he films anything, he sits down and plays with needle drops. And well, yeah, I think he did it with music. Dawn of the Dead, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. He had an original score recorded for it but then still ended up using a lot of archive music yeah well and uh and, and the producer of that was argento uh who wanted to use goblin stuff we'll get like, into that in a few weeks yeah we'll, we'll get into all of that save that save it uh, and he did he in the interview i saw he did discuss like having arguments about like that with argento <laughs> like no i do it this way and he's like no you use goblin Hey, I'm going to make it anyway. You just use what you want to you use. You always use Goblin. <laughs> and, and, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, he was doing that till, till, till his deathbed. Like he was, he was just, he would throw music on top of it. He's like, you use your favorite tracks, whatever. Just like Shit. Kubrick did it with 2001. Yeah. He said, I mean, he, he's like, I just never liked showing my film naked. I assume he was still talking about like the movie without music. Not, not he was naked <laughs> while showing the film. Right. <laughs> but although, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe it would have gone over better. Not yeah. kink shaming anyone. No, yeah, I mean, no. If you like no. showing your film while undressed, please do. No, actually don't do that unless the person is. We'll ho hold special screenings. <laughs> yeah. If the person that you're showing it to has consented. 
Yeah. Don't, don't be a Louis C.K. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, just don't, Louis don't C.K. Just be, presents when in, the Living Dead. When in doubt, <laughs> ask yourself, what would Louis C.K. do? <laughs> Don't do that. Go, go the other way. <laughs> go. go the other way. By the way, we're uh, relaunching the website. Also, we'll have a merchandise store. We'll have some WWLCK bracelets. So after a five-month-long editing process by Romero himself, Night of the Living Dead was ready to be released. But first, they needed somebody to release it. They needed a distributor. So the filmmakers, well, at first they aimed pretty high. They had they took it to Columbia Pictures? They were very close to offering a deal to release the film, but they and a lot of other studios t- turned it down because mostly because it was in black and white. They didn't think that was marketable. Even American International Pictures, this is that Sam Arkoff's company that was known for releasing exploitation drive in movies, a lot of Roger Corman's films of the 1950s, even he turned it down. Uh, and one of the main reasons that they couldn't work out a deal is because AIP wanted the ending change. They wanted Ben to survive. And Romero would not budge on that. We didn't want to restore order. The whole reason for doing the piece is to kick normal in the butt. I've never understood why you'd want to bring things back to normal after you've upset the apple cart so much. That's, that was an actual recording of George Romero. Yeah, weird. <laughs> we found that. <laughs> They found they got a little bit better luck with Continental Releasing, which was owned by Walter Reed uh, Productions, and, and that was a company that was known really for more art house fare than for its exploitation films. In fact, I think Night of the Living Dead was its first quote unquote like exploitation movie. And instead of trying to soften the film, like like Columbia had and and AIP, they actually wanted more gore. They're like, can you we have more cannibalism scenes? They literally asked for that, and they had a few that were on the cutting room floor that they inserted back into the movie because they they wanted that. And, and it's important to note here. I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit. I mean, this is a different time. I mean, the gore in this movie is pretty fantastical. Like yeah. it's, it's yeah. outstanding for the amount of gore that people are used to seeing in this time period. I mean, these zombies are even to this day, like just knowing even what they're eating on and movie magic, blah, blah, blah it's still kind of like disturbing. Like they're just like chowing down on some flesh and bone. Like they're just yeah. really getting after yeah. it. Yeah. So with a distributor in place, the image 10 crew, they held a premiere for the film at the Fulton theater in downtown Pittsburgh on October 1st, 1968. Uh, and it was a hit with the hometown crowd. Of course, everyone was excited to see this movie filmed in their own backyard, but they still, the filmmaker still wondered, would it play? in other areas would it play as well in other areas so over the next few days they continentals and, and image 10 they started they started playing the film in drive-ins around in the kind of the nearby surrounding areas and it always drew pretty good crowds uh, it eventually began opening up in more cities it never got like a major wide release but it kind of gradually moved around the country and it always drew pretty healthy crowds and mostly positive reviews there were, however, some reviewers who did not consider it the instant classic that we might think of it as. Now, Variety's review said that the film, it's a quote, raised doubts about the future of regional cinema, of the regional cinema movement and the moral health of filmgoers who cheerfully opt for unrelieved sadism. <laughs> Love it. 
So just put that on the poster. Yes. I mean, I would go see the movie because of that. Yeah. Listen, Roger, man, sit, I don't know. Yeah, go, go ahead. I got, I got a point. <laughs> you got a point? <laughs> Roger Ebert's review of the film, he did a big piece about kids running, crying from the theater. It, it, his, his review described a lot of the gore in, in detail. Uh, it actually spoiled the ending of the movie. Uh, but his review, and he didn't dislike the movie. It was more about the presentation because uh, sometimes the film would be in double features with movies that maybe were attracting kids that this should not be seeing this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so he actually later wrote uh, that he actually did appreciate the film. But his review was more about the the experience of being in the theater at the time. Yeah, and, I, I, you know, it's scaring kids and it's, you know, making kids cry and uh, that actually ended up drawing more attention and more business to the film. So, so here's where I wanted to jump in, really, because Ebert's review, I had it pulled up here because I just, I, I loved reading his review, even though he fucking spoils it. I don't he spoils point. the shit out of it. <laughs> spoils um, Ben's death at the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he says here, it's, it's hard to remember what sort of effect this movie might have had on you when you were six or seven. But try to remember, at that age, Kids take the events on the screen seriously, and they identify fiercely with the hero. When the hero is killed, that's not an unhappy ending, but a tragic one. Nobody got out alive. It's just over. That's all. I felt real terror in the neighborhood theater last Saturday afternoon. I saw kids who had no resources they could draw upon to protect themselves from the dread and fear they felt. But he does go on to say, censorship isn't the answer to something like this. Censorship is never the answer. For that matter, Night of the Living Dead was passed for general audiences by the Chicago Police Censor Board. Since it had no nudity in it, it was all right for kids, I guess. This is another example. (laughs) It does have fucking nudity in it, Raj. (laughs) (laughs) This is another example, I guess, and there have been a lot of them, of the incompetence and stupidity of the censorship system that Chicago stubbornly maintains under political patronage. Censorship How did he miss not, the naked zombie? Yeah, I don't know. Censorship is not the answer, but I would be ashamed to make a civil libertarian argument defending the right of those little girls and boys to see a film which left a lot of them stunned with terror. In a case like this, I'd want to know what their parents were thinking of when they dumped their kids in front of the theater to see a film titled Night of the Living Dead. He's got a point. What I do appreciate <laughs> about that, oh, that's, that's exactly where I wanted to go, by the way. I just think the world needs to hear that. By the way, that Roger Ebert's like, this movie is not for kids. But he's still like leaving it on the parents at, at the parents' feet. Like, why did you bring your kids to a movie called Night of the Living Dead? It's called so, Night of the Living Dead. What do you think it's going to be about? What are these kids doing here? The uh, naked zombie, by the way, I should side note that he meant that he failed to see in the film, I guess. Uh, the, they, they hired like a, um, an artist model for that. And the day that they filmed that, they had everyone from that little town in Pennsylvania like setting up lawn chairs and shit on the side of the road to watch that scene being filmed. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's really the story, right? I mean, he even says in, in, in his review, he talks a little bit about how, well, obviously the idea was that, you know, he talks about that there's the MPAA coming in, the code sure. that would probably regulate this sort of thing. And Luckily, they were not around quite yet or... Yeah, and he said it seemed like this was rushed to get it in there before this happened. He talks about it in this review that, like, I mean, yeah, they want to make a quick buck uh, on a movie that seems off limits for children while they still can. 
they want to do it. So all of this stuff just reminds me of like modern day stuff is why I brought it up. I mean, not yeah. to get too political, but it just, it just seems like modern day stuff that like, yeah, they're, they're trying to make some money while they can. They're, I don't know. I just love the idea that even back then this was an issue. And even he here is saying like, you can't censor this stuff. Censorship generally uh, has the exact opposite result absolutely. of what you want to have yeah, from it. Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. So the film continued to play in, thousands of theaters over its uh, the course of its uh, life in the theater often for weeks or even months long stretches uh, it appeared as part of a double feature in some markets like it was paired with doctor who and the daleks for a little while which is a little spin-off film yeah who, uh, which is yeah. an odd pairing uh and then later it was paired with mario bava's blood and black lace which makes a little more sense Continental tried to capitalize on the racial subtext of the film as it continued to play all the way into 1970. The film's still playing in theaters around the country, but they would split it on double bills with straight up black exploitation films. Like they, at that point, had fully embraced the, the racial aspects of the film. Wow. Uh, and then er in early 1971, this is over two years after the film was initially released. There was a theater in Washington, D.C. which started playing it at midnight. And that sort of kick-started a trend that really reached its peak at New York City's Waverly Theater, where it stayed for about two years. Again, this is the time that Dwayne Jones is teaching in New York City. So he's walking by this theater fairly regularly and seeing Night of the Living Dead up on the marquee. That's awesome. Did they do, did they do stuff like Rocky Horror Picture Show where people were like, is there anything like that for this? You mean like audience participation stuff? Yeah, I don't yeah. think so. I don't think that stuff. I think Rocky Horror mostly kicked off that kind of trend. Uh, okay. uh, the true midnight movie would not be really established for a couple more years after this with the release of films like El Topo and Eraserhead. Those were kind of the first midnight movies, but this was um, sort of the genesis of that movement. Oh, uh, okay. So the movie ended up making a lot of money for Continental. It was doing really well. But Romero and the rest of the Image 10 crew wasn't seeing much of that money, if any at all. And they ended up taking the distributor to court, saying, that, hey, you guys owe us money from ticket sales. Uh, the case dragged on for years and years until finally the distribution rights just ended up reverting back to Image 10 when Continental's parent company, Walter Reed, went bankrupt in 1978. Mm. And then around that time, they had another shocking realization was that their film did not have a legal copyright on it. So what happened when the film was first completed, their 35 millimeter print had the title night of the flesh eaters. That was what it was going to be released as, but they had to change it because they were threatened by a lawyer who represented uh, the, the cl clients who had made a film in 1964, just called the flesh eaters. So they had to change it quickly. So continental released the film. They changed the title to Night of the Living Dead, which honestly is a better title, I think, anyway. But they didn't include the copyright on the title when they struck new prints. So as a result, the film remains to this day in public domain. Now that law about a decade later was changed. Uh, and normally you'd put the copyright at the end of the film anyway, but in this case it was on like the title at the beginning. There was that little C and the little copyright. But now that this would never have happened now because the copyright laws have changed, but because it happened before the laws changed, even now, nobody really owns the rights to Night of the Living Dead. Uh, 
always always double check your uh, double check your documents, double check your prints, guys. Thank you, says the guy who works in law. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, funny. Like, I mean, there's part of me that I mean, I appreciate having complete access, and like, we can upload this movie to the YouTube channel right now, and I feel like very strongly we just should, just because what's it going to hurt? Um, but it, it, I mean. I feel bad that none of these guys have the right to their art. There's yeah, a part of me that sucks. after a while that, that, that like, you know, that's fair, like 50 years, maybe the public should just have access to it anyway. But, uh, but I don't know. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a tough thing for George. I, luckily things worked out for Romero. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's still a tragedy. I mean, this is one of the most influential films of all time and none of the people involved in the, the, blood sweat and tears that went into it made a dime off of it and that's that's him. true and you got to think about guys like i mean now that you say that i think about uh Dwayne over there i mean uh, the actors got paid for their work but you know should he still at least get like a stipend like every time like the movie showed somewhere or something residuals yeah yeah, yeah residuals yeah but and, and I, I called this influential the word influential gets thrown a lot around a lot on classic films and often with good reason you know a lot of times you call something influential and it deserves it but how many films can be credited as starting an entire subgenre that's as pervasive in our society as the zombie subgenre yeah yeah very very few very i mean think few. about it like in modern terms resident evil uh 28 days later Shaun of the dead the walking dead uh the last of us for a very you know recent example none of those would exist not a single one of those would exist without george romero's night of the living dead oh 100 yeah. percent. i mean in the documentary birth of the living dead uh gail ann hurd who is the producer of the walking dead um like she straight up says the blueprint we used for the zombies is based on night of the living dead absolutely yeah. and the craziest part about that is that this was an accident uh, George Romero had no intention of creating a new genre of film. He was just trying to make a cheap little movie that would make his small production house a quick buck so they could make the, the art movies that they really wanted to make. And then another happy accident that the film is often credited for uh, is that of its social commentary, especially in regards to race. Now, I'm not saying that all of the social commentary is accidental. If you watch any of George Romero's other films, then you know that that's sort of his thing uh trying to say something through genre uh but on this particular film romero was always adamant that it was unintentional uh but unintentional or not we touched on this a little bit earlier casting Dwayne jones as ben the subtext creates itself i mean there yep. was no way you could cast a black man in this role and it not make some sort of statement you yeah. know who does a really good job is like uh, Guillermo del Toro. There's an interview you can find on YouTube, and I apologize, I don't remember exactly where it's. It's at, on the Criterion release. Yeah, but I mean, like you can look it up. Guillermo del Toro interviewing George Romero, and and George Romero is like very humble about it or whatever, passive about like I didn't mean to, blah blah blah. And Guillermo del Toro is very adamant about like, yeah, but like you make a decision like this, and you as an artist you're imprinting yourself on this work. Right. So we're, we're, we're seeing your politics in this, whether you want it or not, like it's there and you did what you did, you know? Well, at the, at the time, like that, that's telling because at the time, just casting a black guy in the role without even it being, without it, having second thought about it, that's a political statement in 1968 America. 
Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. just making that decision without it being a big deal to you. Uh, because Romero was and, and always was very, a very like liberal progressive thinker. Um, so that is a statement, even if you, even if the film, the original script didn't have that, you know, implanted in it. Yeah. So even, even from a structural standpoint, like Ben's introduction is pretty significant because the film begins with Johnny and Barbara in the graveyard. Uh, then after Johnny's death, Barbara flees and the audience is left kind of rooting for her as if she is the film's protagonist. In any other film, she would be your main character. I was about right? to say the same thing. Yeah, like she yeah. should be the final girl, basically. You've got all yeah. the information you need to assume that she's the main character. You've got her backstory. You know why she's at the graveyard. You get you know stories about her family, her mother, her brother, her father. Uh, this is all establishing her as a character. And then Ben just shows up out of nowhere, no backstory, no nothing. He's just there in the house, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't know who he is. We don't know his story. We get a little bit of the story of how he got to the farmhouse when it, with his monologue later on. But even that leaves out any details of his backstory before the events of the film, right? Yeah. And even and he's telling that story really as a way to confront or to to com, co, to comfort Barbara, who is in shock. She's catatonic at this point. But all that kind of changes when Ben slaps her, the scene that we talked about earlier. He sl tries to slap her back to reality, uh, something that, of course, was unheard of in 1968, a black man slapping a white woman. The, the closest parallel would probably be in, in the Heat of the Night, which came out a year earlier, where Sidney Poitier slaps a racist plantation owner. Uh, that was the only kind of parallel, but even Barbara being a woman makes this have even a little bit more impact than that. And also she doesn't, like, she's not a racist. Like the other guy in the heat of the night, he's just a fucking asshole and deserves it. But she right. is just, she just needs to chill the fuck out, basically. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it was funny because when, uh, when Kat and I were watching this and that happens, Kat was like, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just like, wait, babe, what are you saying? She, what? And she's like, well, She's losing her shit. I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Romero quickly establishes Ben as the hero of the movie. I mean, he's he's smart and capable. He's ready to take action. Uh, he's very calm amidst all the chaos of the film. Uh, Night of the Living Dead is essentially Ben's story, and we mentioned this before. But consider the time at which the movie was released. In the midst of the civil rights movement, like Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April of 1968, and this movie is released in October. You know, uh, yeah. seeing a black man in a film tormented by a mob of white zombies before being killed by law enforcement resonated with audiences, whether that was Romero's intent or not. Right. There was supposedly a like, dispute on that, like the ending, uh, that there was an idea that like, oh, we shouldn't kill off everybody. Um, but yeah. I think that they made the right decision. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, it's, it's nihilistic, yeah. but... Yeah. Supposedly, uh, Dwayne was saying that, that like, if you, if you let this guy live, and then he's saved by the white cops, or basically, essentially... I mean, this is so crazy, just like, I, I guess, considering the situation we're in right now um it's just interesting that that he, he had that discussion with them on the set that was mm -hmm. that was a story i read about that he was like for black audiences this is 
not going to feel the same if you just let him die yeah here well, like, I, like if, yeah. as if you know that if he's just rescued by this group of white cops coming in or whatever the white military or whatever he's like it's not going to feel the same as if he should just he should also die here right so and there was a 2017 interview in the New York Times with Jordan Peele. He was promoting Get Out. And he talks about the influence of Romero's film and Romero's sort of statement that he wasn't trying to make a comment on race. But here's what Jordan Peele said. He said, I partially believe Romero. And, but even if that's true, the way the movie handles race is so essential to what makes it great. All social norms break down when the event happens and a black man is caged up in a house with a white woman who is terrified. We are not sure how much she's terrified at the monsters on the outside or this man on the inside who is now the hero. And also the end of the movie, that's nothing if it's a white dude. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't say it better than that. (laughs) I mean, Romero is a great filmmaker and I I have no doubts that night of the living dead would have been very good. uh, Even if a white guy had been cast as Ben, but it loses yeah. A lot of power. I don't know that it would be the classic that we're still talking about 52 years later without that. Like flo- audiences may have flocked to it at the time, but I don't know if it would have the staying power that it had, had a white man been cast in that role. I think you're a hundred percent right. But also yeah. one of the things that I think really works for it is if, even if Romero is not thinking about the long-term like lasting effects of this thing, one of the cool parts about it is, is actually because of that, it's not that he makes like, it's not that he like purposely set out to like, we got to get a black guy as the hero and we got to give him black power and we got to give him like some kind of special, like he's just extra charismatic and just like great. It's like, no, this is a role. And the black guy is the best actor for this. He wasn't even thinking about that. It sounds like it was just like, this, this is the man that is best suited to fill this role and even in the movie the character of ben despite everything we've said doesn't have like any special abilities in fact you could argue he's wrong um throughout the movie like i mean he's technically he doesn't always make the best decisions he just takes charge in the situation he does send the lady back down to the basement where her daughter is going to murder her later and then he ends up holding up in the basement uh, when he's like refused to go there the whole time. Um, so it's not as though he's like, you know, I am the ultimate in truth and power. Like he's just, he's a dude in this situation like everyone else. He is the same as you. And, and, and so I don't know, maybe that's not the same for everybody, but that's one of the cool things I enjoyed about it too. It's like, it's like in 68, people weren't looking at black people this same way, but it's like, this is another human being in the same scenario as you. And he's going through this whole time trying to relate to Barbara, God help her, who's a fucking moron the entire time. <laughs> he's trying, he's trying to work with her. <laughs> well, the the wife and I have been going through a couple different, um, a couple different graphic novels each week, just kind of, you know, eating and talking and, you know, reading, trying to disconnect from some screens every now and then. But what we've talked about is being able to, the, the idea of icon iconography and being able to project yourself onto a character and i think you know for the time that this was made and having a black guy as your lead 
every person wants to see themselves as the hero. So I think this this started breaking some molds of, uh, you know, the person you're projecting your yourself onto doesn't look like you, and it makes you think of things like, you know, what it doesn't always have to look like me. It doesn't always have to be this one particular thing and that any, anybody's capable of, of doing these things. And just like Gary just finished saying, he doesn't make all the right decisions, which yeah. when you look at him next to guys like uh, John McClane, who maybe doesn't make all the greatest decisions, but you're right there with him. And uh, it, it's, I think, I think, yeah, because if you didn't, if it wasn't done intentionally, it was at least done correctly. Yeah. Well, well, here's what I think, Todd. Like, I think, I think what happens in film, or what should happen in film. I mean, people get up in arms about this stuff. Like, people are mad. Like, God help them. Idiots are mad about like the Black Panther movie coming out and right. Blah blah blah. Yeah. But I think the dream is is that it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. I think that that's yeah. that's the idea that you're working towards, and that yeah. it's like. Um, you know, I think part of the step is that you get to a point where like movies like Black Panther happen that like an all black cast, like a, a predominantly black cast happens to show that like, hey, these they're black and they can act and like it's okay. Like it's fine. Black people can sell movies. Like it, it, it's, it almost seems dirty even saying it because why, why is that a discussion? But, right. well, yeah. The reason that it's yeah. a discussion is because for years and years and years, Hollywood did not well, well, no, represent I, black people on film. So them being represented is significant. This kind of builds on what Todd was saying, how, you know, you can look at a film and you can watch Night of the Living Dead and you can see, hey, the hero doesn't have to look like me, right? But for black kids watching this movie, being yeah, able to well, see yeah, a hero yeah. that does look like them is incredibly significant, especially in 1968, because that was not happening. Aside from... Uh, like those Sidney Poitier movies, and those were mostly all him going up against racist dudes, right? Well, it wasn't I, until the black exploitation films that came out a few years after that 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 Hollywood truly embraced having black heroes in films. I, I want to be clear that 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 I get that, yeah, yeah. Like I I I'm saying like it is an important step, and it's the step that has to happen because you have to show like this can happen. It's okay. Like it's, and it, and it sucks that you have to prove it because it should just be yeah. a given. Yeah. But here we are, we live in a world where you got to prove it, I guess. And so, and, and I don't mean that cynically. I mean, just like, no, I'm glad I love black Panther. I'm glad it exists. And, and I absolutely agree it exists, but you want the world. I think the dream is that you want the world that it's like miles Morales exists because who gives a fuck what color Spider-Man is? Right. Like it's it's right. like, it's like if, if race is not, if you're not playing a white supremacist, then it shouldn't matter what color of skin you have. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that is true, but there, there's a whole hours long conversation you could have about the, the importance of representation on film because you have, I mean, especially if you're telling, like in, in the Night of the Living Dead is not necessarily this case, but if you're telling stories that are from a black perspective, 
then obviously that's a very important representation. And, well, sure. and I just mean the dream the is to eventually get there. I mean, obviously there, there are certain situations that like, yeah, I mean, if you're playing a role that requires like a certain upbringing, then sure. Cause just saying that like, Oh, I'm colorblind. I don't care what color the person is almost discounts that person's um, ex- life experience because they've experienced life differently because of their color, you know? Yeah. So it is, I, I get what Gary's saying as well. And I, it, that would be nice. But in the meantime, representation is very, very important. And, and the fact that it, that there was representation in this film without it being initially a racial issue for, from George Romero is incredibly significant considering the time in which this film was made. I, I guess that's, that's where I ultimately land is like, Oh, Hey, here's a weird example in 1968 where there was a movie where nobody gave a shit. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We're just yeah. like, if only we had a world filled with George Romero's. Right. <laughs> they were like, hey, Dwayne, that, that's, that's Dwayne's the best actor we got. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he literally <laughs> says that. He, he says that in that interview with Guillermo del Toro. He's like, man, all it was is like, we knew a bunch of people and we were all at the same college. And we we're like, Dwayne's the best actor. Like, I mean, that should be the dude. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, like, he came in that's an audition and we're like, why are we even talking about this? It's Dwayne. Wade's the guy. Play Ben. So, but I think Jordan Peele is right about another thing: is that the ending of the film, where Ben gets shot, does not pack the same punch if it's a white dude. Uh, there's there's nothing necessarily in the film that indicates that, like the cops, the posse that's hunting zombies, is are, are racist. But the subtext is sort of there, especially considering the era in which it was made, and which is something that is sadly still very relevant today. Uh, Ben's race also comes into play, I think, with in the antagonism between him and Harry Cooper, mm-hmm. uh, the, the two, they immediately butt heads. They're immediately fighting over who's the leader. One of my favorite lines in the film was Ben putting him in his place going, you go down to the cellar, you're the boss down there, but I'm the boss up here. And Harry Cooper, not, nothing in his dialogue is inherently like racist, but you can almost see this like seething rage below the surface, you know, that right. once again implies a racial issue. He, he feels that because he is, older and whiter than Ben that he should automatically be the leader despite the fact that he is making much stupider decisions than Ben is. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. (laughs) And in the end, everyone else, I mean, everyone dies in the film. Everyone's either blown up or they're eaten or in the case of Harry shot by Ben, uh, which again is not a a heroic or stabbed brutally by a garden spade. True, yes. <laughs> and then Ben is the lone survivor, and he hides out in the cellar only to emerge, hoping for rescue, and then he's shot by cops. <laughs> you know, like, this is a guy who, he's able to survive the undead, but he cannot survive white America at the end of the film, which is a hell of a fucking statement. And whether Romero intended that or not, it's a powerful image and it is i think instrumental to the lasting legacy of this film yeah. it's it's so crazy i mean there's the, i mean i feel like we've been talking for forever and and you could literally do like a whole series uh, about this film alone it, it's there's a lot to say about Night of the living dead in so many ways i mean i guess in a lot of instances an artist puts out a piece of art and you want people to attach their own meaning to the thing i mean god help us there's so many ways you could read this film uh 
you could talk about the idea that there's a failure of humanity to cooperate in the freaking house the whole time. Humanity Um, consuming itself. Yeah, exactly. The fear of another, not just like the black race, but just in general, just like the fear of the other thing coming there, Uh, returning things to order, but at the cost of social justice, like at the end, like it's just, there's like a whole freaking world of things you could gather out of this yeah. movie, and that's why it's retaining its legacy. I, think. I agree. One of the things that Romero does in this film that I think is kind of along the lines of what you're t- talking about as far as how many different takes you could, t- you could have for this film yeah. is one that I, I think is absolutely intentional I, I, on Romero's part. So there were two horror films released in 1968 that acted as a sort of transitional marker for the genre. The first was Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. It came out in June of that year. And that the other one, of course, was Night of the Living Dead. And what both of these films did was it took the genre out of the castles, out of, the, out of Transylvania, and it put it in mo- the modern America. So in Rosemary's Baby, it's a little more blatant because the film is set mostly in an affluent apartment in New York City in Manhattan. But Romero, what he does in Night of the Living Dead is he makes it almost like blatantly apparent that he's kind of trying to move horror into a new realm because he starts the film in this gothic setting that would not be out of place in those old universal horror movies. It starts in a graveyard, starts it in a cemetery, and you've got lightning and rain and it's very gothic, right? And then Barbara runs from the zombie, her brother gets killed, and he literally films the transition from a graveyard into a modern American house. And he's putting that transition on screen. Now, the big difference here, of course, is that Polanski, if you've seen Rosemary's Baby, he seems to kind of, he has a disdain for old horror movie tropes, whereas Romero grew up loving those movies. And he embraces the tropes of those movies because the opening scenes of Night of the Living Dead they feel like they're straight out of one of those 50s creature features. Yeah, yeah, they do. You know? The staging, the acting, the, even the way that like Johnny and Barbara are dressed, they feel like they belong in the 50s more than in the late 60s. Yeah. He, he talks about in the interview I saw with him with uh, uh, Colin Geddes um, about seeing like Frankenstein and Dracula on prints where they like came around. I mean, he was only like, I mean, he was young when those movies would have initially uh been circulated but he talks about seeing them and how beautiful they were but you know he went into a time period of the giant creature feature you know like that sort of thing and he was like these things didn't have the same impact he grew up sitting under his covers he talks about todd here here's where you can appreciate it he talks about reading uh comics like before the code and yeah those old horror the EC comics, like reading horror movies. And he said that like, despite what everybody thought or like what everybody acted like with like, wow, disturbing these things were, he would giggle about it because he said that you would read these things. And there was like a moral code to these comics still that like the guy being a dick would get his at the end. (laughs) And uh, somehow still it, it, it played itself out in a good way with like a moral tone um he called them like the laurel comics i I can't remember he said like stephen king had a quote about a laurel comic like right before pet cemetery a laurel comic is a moral comic or something like that Mm -hmm. and 
I can't recall that exactly. Um, but he talked about that being one of the things he enjoyed. So it's all the more reason, like, you go into a movie like this and you hear him say, like, I didn't mean to do shit. But you're like, dude, your whole life seems to have been built to do this shit. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's crazy because I, – I, but I think that that transition into – like modern horror is intentional on his part. Cause the film, like I said, it starts off as that like fifties, like creature feature feel. It feels like Johnny and Barbara could be in one of those like giant bug movies or whatever. But yeah. as the film goes on, it gets grittier and grittier and darker and darker and to something that was unlike anything that had really been seen on film before. And I think the gore, I think Gary mentioned the gore a little bit earlier being kind of shocking for the time. And it was a huge part of that. Now gore had, certainly been on film before. I think by this time, Herschel Gordon Lewis, also from Pittsburgh, had already made a name for himself as the godfather of gore because I think Blood Feast was released in like 64 or so. He'd already made like Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs and stuff like that. But those were sort of campy. You know, they were gory and, and in full color, blood red, but campy. Whereas Romero is, he's setting, he's, he's in, kind of combining that gore with a gritty documentary style realism that no that was like shot that's what makes it so shocking to people because it's less yeah. of a cartoon now it seems tame yeah. by today's standards but in 1968 this was this freaked people out man yeah it's definitely the starting point for a lot of the stuff that is shocking today or or you know from then was shocking 10 years later and then 10 years later got right uh, ramped up again and so on and so forth mm -hmm. so i this is this if uh you know this definitely falls into the category of must see for i mean it checks it checks the must see because of so many reasons you know you're able if you're able to to put yourself in the position of a person in 1968 or if you're able to just like transport yourself like obviously I, I feel like that's part of it with films in general is you have to put yourself in the position to enjoy the film for what it was able to present to you at the time it was Agreed. created. Yes. Mm, yeah. I think, I think, I think historical context is essential for a lot of films. Yeah. Context. Mm. Oh, Always context. Absolutely. This movie presented to you um, a lot of not only civil rights issues but i mean god they threw in cannibalism they threw in <laughs> i mean they threw in a matricide uh the the heroes die at the end there which is, is which yeah, is very and of course very, it, um, it's taboo busting from. at every mm -hmm. yeah. freaking yeah. instance and then along the way it creates an entire new subgenre because like we said those those original zombies were not like they weren't flesh eaters they were just you know walking corpses like Romero introduced the idea that you could only kill them by destroying the brain, that they fed on flesh and things like that. Um, and of course, some of those rules would be changed later on, especially by Dan O'Bannon's Return of the Living Dead. I think that established a lot of the more traditional zombie tropes, but it was built on what Romero did. Um, but if you think about the fact that none of these tropes existed before this, that is an insane thing to think about. Yeah. Like, it's, it's hard to imagine. Honestly, well, it, it is, it, and, and also just the fact that, like, I feel like I just, like, glazed over it for a second there, but, I mean, I'm, again, I want to be very clear, like, in all the discussions we've even had about black and white people and civil rights and that sort of thing, I mean, this movie incorporated uh, 
the ability for a horror movie to make a statement, like an actual yeah. political statement, like a humanitarian statement, like a, which is something that horror movies do on the regular now. Like you almost, yeah. I mean, it. Jordan Peele's whole career is built on this right yeah, now. Absolutely, it's, it's like it's that that this is a genre that can actually speak to something. Like sci-fi movies were kind of already doing it, but this is this seems to be a turning point for horror movies well, making a, 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 a socio-political statement. I feel I feel like a lot of sci-fi, and maybe it's just the sci-fi that I'm into, ends up being um, in that cyberpunk subgenre where it's uh, the oppressor is the government, and I guess and and I and I guess to a degree this goes along with that, but it seems like horror, and you know, chi- feel free to correct me or chime in with your own thoughts on this. Like horror deals with the relationships between between individuals and between people whereas sci-fi take takes more those big those big idea things like the idea of governments and uh big corporations like controlling the people am i am i on no 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 you're you're absolutely right yeah yeah. i mean i'm sure there are i'm sure there are exceptions but i think as a general rule yeah i think you're on the money yeah Yeah. there's actual talks about this i i was i was okay actually like there are papers written on this. I, I stumbled across a bunch when I would get into my like HP Lovecraft thing. Like one of his things was incorporating sci-fi with horror, but like typically sci-fi is broader ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that, that horror would like have more of an internal uh, factor that uh, okay. like, a, 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 anyway, not to drag that out, but, but basically, yeah, I mean, you, you you can have these sci-fi ideas about like what humanity could be or what, what the broader spectrum, like where we could be or what could blah, blah, blah. Horror typically takes like something that is internally affecting people right now, like is dangerous and scary and sophisticated in a different way. Yeah. Like horror usually attacks that. Yeah. And uh, that's what Romero is doing here that that these ideas are like these are all uh, internal dialogue internal thoughts like it, it, like things that people maybe aren't saying out loud that are like points i mean obviously some people are saying them out loud noxiously but at this point but uh yeah i mean it's it's real life things that are here and now that we're struggling with on screen just depicted in a way that's more digestible to most people i guess you'd yeah. say And what's crazy about that is that, you know, Romero, for creating all these horror tropes and creating the way that horror movies are sort of utilized in in making a statement, he never wanted to be a horror movie filmmaker. You know, like that was not his goal. He loved horror movies as a kid, but that was not his career aspiration. Like he, remember the Leighton Image crew, they really only settled on doing a horror movie because they thought they could make a quick buck. It was cheap. They could sell it, you know, easy, easy to do. Then they would make back their investment, make a little bit of money, and then maybe get a little bit of recognition to make their next movie. But they didn't count on Night of the Living Dead being the phenomenon that it would become. Uh, so th- the next film that Romero directed was a, a drama. It's a love story called There's Always Vanilla. A lot of the same crew members as the Leighton Image that worked on Night worked on this movie. But it was less congenial. Like They started fighting a little bit more, and tensions ran pretty high. It was, by all accounts, not a very good shoot. Uh, and it 
didn't help that the film when it was released was not particularly successful either with critics or with box office it's even romero calls it his least favorite of every movie he ever made wow romero's next film season of the witch which i actually watched yesterday i'd never seen it before so i, I found it on amazon prime and watched it it delves a little closer to the horror genre although it could barely be considered a horror film although it's got some horror elements it's got witchcraft involved in it. i've been interested since we're in this process of like trying to watch that like yeah it's on it's very easy to find it's on it's on arrow videos thing their streaming services on amazon prime it's very easy to find out there uh, and there are some nightmare sequences in it that are really cool and, and would kind of hint at some of the stuff that romero would do later on but it didn't do well either it was another strikeout for him so then he turned back to kind of straight up horror with the crazies which is a if you've never seen it it's a very night of the living dead-esque tale of a town overrun by toxic citizens and we might tackle the crazies later on i feel like doing a series on like pandemic movies might be pretty fitting (laughs) and the crazies could work for that but after working on the crazies which the crazies did okay it's it's been embraced more later on but he decided to take a bit of a breather he worked in television for about three years after that and it was during the time he was working on television that he met a guy named Richard Rubenstein. They worked on some projects together. And then they had decided they'd make a film together. And it was that film that would end up being the film that Romero would call his favorite of his career. He said that all the way up until his death, that this movie that they made was the favorite of his career. And it's also a film that first paired him officially with a young makeup effects prodigy by the name of Tom Savini. So what we're going to do here on the show, this is where we're going to pick up next week. Uh, It's a movie called Martin, released in 1970, oh, like 76 or so. I didn't write that down. Sorry. Uh, But that's what we're going to talk about next week for part two of this series. So what we're planning to do is we're going to spend the next several weeks not only examining the career of Romero, but very specifically focusing on the films that he made with his frequent collaborator, Tom Savini. These are two giants of the genre that worked together for most of their career. 77, by the way. 77, okay. So we're going to focus on their collaborations over the next, I think it's like eight or 10 weeks. There's a lot of films that they did together. So it's going to be a fun journey. It's going to be a fun kind of seeing how their careers weave together. I think it's going to be really cool. So join us next week, of course, for Martin. Uh, You can find that online streaming, uh, I think. Actually, I don't think Martin is streaming, but it's out there. I mean, can we just tell people to look on YouTube? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in the case of this point. point, Can we just say look on YouTube? This one is, it's not streaming that we could find. The DVD is long, long out of print, but it is. Yeah, if you search for it, you can find it. Uh, We will typically post on our website. You'll find a link in the show description, places where you can watch pretty much all the movies that we talk about every week. So we, because again, we do want you to walk, watch along with us. Uh, But this one, we couldn't skip it, even though it was hard to find because it is the first collaboration between Romero and, and Savini. I feel like we're doing ourselves a disservice here. I know we're going long, but I mean, uh, first of all, this is a classic piece of cinema that deserves all the time we can afford it. And uh, two, this is our first episode with uh, Cinema Shot. Why would we, why would, uh, it's okay that it's long. We, we've got to talk about zombies for a second. This movie we made- We talk about zombies for two hours, Gary. Yeah, but did we talk about zombies 
through history what people think zombies are because i was watching this movie and i, I remember i remember all the discussions of like 28 days later and like everywhere that zombies came along and this is this is the og right like this is the one that people consider yeah. the og and it's like these zombies uh first of all uh the first one that you see in the movie looks like it's trying to run it's struggling it's trying to run. Though. He also uses a uh, and he a uses tool. a fucking brick. Mm-hmm. So do not tell me the zombies cannot run or use tools because yeah. this one definitely features that. Yeah, zombies are not above that. I just I just wanted to establish that. But Thank you, Gary. This is <laughs> I feel like this is important for the zombie conversation at large. Well, we we are going to have multiple conversations about zombies over the next few weeks so i feel i feel i feel feel like right now we need the graphic of that the star from nbc that the more you know just (laughs) i'm just saying stop watching 28 days later or like whatever movie you're watching they're not even zombies zombies, that's a good point they're uh stop watching the movie zombies run train to basan or whatever Zack snyder's dawn of the dead or Zack Snyder's thought of the dead, you'll be like, oh, I like my zombies walking. No, okay, zombies don't it. exist anyway. Who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> You're being really bitchy about something that, like Romero in the OG, there are lots of possibilities Absolutely. available to you. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about that in, in the coming weeks. Thank you guys for discussing this with us. I know this is a long episode, but again, there's a shit ton to talk about with this movie, and we could probably talk for another two hours if we wanted to because there's so much to dive into on this movie let's talk about romero's apartment oh shut the fuck up please follow us on social media and all that you'll find links to all of that in the show notes on this wherever you're listening to this podcast uh, we'll have links to everything we'll have links to our personal twitters and letterboxes and all that stuff so you can find that everywhere follow us Give us a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. Share us with your friends, all that stuff. Yeah, if you haven't hit subscribe already on the YouTube, you're seeing this on YouTube, please go ahead and hit subscribe. Yeah, and like Justin said, the five-star review on the podcast. I know it seems like a lot, but you can take like five seconds out of your day. Instead of scrolling through your Twitter feed, go give us a five-star review on Apple. Sign up for YouTube if you haven't already. If you have a Google account, which you do, Go into YouTube and hit subscribe. It helps us out. It helps gets it gets us in front of more people. That's what we need here. And uh, if you if you like what we do, and 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 believe me, all of us are not drunk bastards like me. Some of them are Justin, who put in a lot of time and research into this situation, and uh, and, and they deserve your support. Justin has a very nice voice on film i, I love thank hearing him talk <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you Gary. uh well thank, and thank you todd for joining us for this one my pleasure as always well where can you guys you guys want to go ahead and give your personal handles sure todd? i i'm at mr todd a davis on facebook twitter and instagram i am at score bishop Shut oh sorry up, oh sorry <laughs> sorry go you go Bye. ahead we'll edit that just call me we'll we'll, we'll do that in the mirror if you say my name five times i will just show up and give you my twitter Uh, (laughs) which i am at this is gary horn i'm at justin underscore bishop until next week yeah let's do it yeah feels the same right we'll keep this
Yeah, yeah. I think May so. the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. <laughs> Out of all the quotes. Interesting choice, Todd. <laughs> I, I, I feel it's, I feel it's, uh, it really uh, applies to many different things. So, yeah. yeah. In life. I'm, I'm going to stick with it. Right. If, if, I, if, if, if I'm regular on the show now, uh, yeah, I'm sticking with that as my as my. Uh, Every week, Johnny mom. has the keys is what John, you're going to say? Yep, Johnny has the keys. All right, we might have to have a meeting about that. <laughs> should. Let's, let's use an actual more memorable quote. <laughs> that is nobody's favorite quote from Night of the Living Dead is Johnny has the keys. Johnny has the keys. I'm All right, we'll see it. you next week with, uh, with Martin. <laughs> my head, you so... I'm glad we got that joke out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we got that joke. Gino!